This is In Search of the Pluriverse. We are Sophie Creer and Eric Vong. Join us in our search for a world in which many worlds can thrive. We were invited by Het Nieuwe Instituut to be the first curators of their traveling academy. For more context, go to pluriverse.hetnieuweinstituut.nl And follow us on Instagram at In Search of the Pluriverse. So that idea that time is money and that is being represented in the price for a product, that's also something that, is that breakable? Can we break that super strong code between time and money? Well, we can break habits, but I think a lot of these habits would be broken more easily in community. Because we, I, of course I can break I can break that habit and I, by becoming aware of it and by finding more ease and more spaciousness around the habit. So habits can be broken and we can train into new habits. But it's, it's, it's not easy because if everything around us is still functioning on that matrix. For this edition of our search for manifestations of the pluriverse, we tune into the layered landscape of central Asturias in Spain. We encounter large-scale extractivist industrial activities and a patchwork of small-scale rural caserias, self-sustainable farms. In every conversation, we sense the remnants of the Franco regime in the civil war that linger on unrepaired. We traveled here wondering if the strong working class identity of the region, with its unions, strikes and hard-fought victories, still lives on today as the industrial decline that started in the 80s carries on. At the same time, we see that tourism and leisure are becoming an important economic activity and that rewilding is high on the agenda of policymakers, making it food for marketeers who advertise Asturias as a natural paradise. Reality is obviously way more complex than a marketing slogan. Will the workers' culture of solidarity and struggle be the social foundation for Asturias' future? And can this future be a plural future that doesn't deny Asturias' pastoral past and ways of helping each other out? My name is Patricia Villanueva and I'm the head of exhibitions at Laboral Centro de Arte in Spain. Something about the building, you can see it's uh, huge. You are in the biggest building in Spain not only the art center, but the uh, Universidad Laboral. If you have the chance to go there, please do it. It's called Universidad Laboral. They have a music school, a drama school. Uh, the University of Oviedo has uh, three or four degrees there. There is a theater. The regional uh, TV and radio is there, and there is still plenty of space to be used. <laughs> so, I mean, the biggest building of Spain, and this is like true, it's not uh, a joke. The building was built uh, for a decade during the 50s. It was built during Franco's time, actually during dictatorship, and it was built as an orphanage for kids. You know, in Asturias, there used to be a lot of mining, and many men would die in the mine, so the kids would, uh, would be orphans, and uh, then they would come here to live and to learn a profession. 
the education they had here was all related to metalworks, to carpentry, to that kind, that kind of training. So at the very beginning it was just for orphans, but with the years uh, other kids started to study here and then kids from all over Spain would also come here to study because apparently the training was very, very good. And even kids from wealthy families would come here because if they were willing to study engineering, they had a training here that was very good understanding the machines. So that's more or less the history of the building. It was abandoned after a dictatorship. It obviously represents a fascist era of Spain and it's a fascist architecture. But then the government decided to resignify the building through culture. So now it's a city of culture. It was open again in 2007, as I was saying, with all these cultural facilities for students and for everyone who is interested in art and culture. And I'll show you part of the production center first. Oh, well, you can also see the size of the space. <laughs> it's Thursday morning. We're sitting on six plastic chairs that we were allowed to take outside from Laboral, Centro de Arte y Creación Industrial, here in Gijón, Asturias. We're sitting in the shade of a tree. The wind is slowly picking up. And Laboral, uh, as we just heard from Patricia Villanueva, the, the head of programs, used to be a school for professional work, where you were trained to function within the professional system. So lots of technical training. Uh, built during the Franco regime, so also with quite a um, weight. We didn't see many humans, at least humans seem very tiny. It seems to be built to impress. Very classic, fascist, long lines. You feel small and humble. It was uh, designed and built up as one of the biggest. It is the biggest building in Spain, but also this kind of uh, fastest architecture that is uh, austerity, but really makes you feel like you are nothing. But we took a look at the furniture, and that looks uh, amazingly human and made for humans. So it's, it's quite a contradiction between the building and the furniture. So that's where we are for this conversation today. How did we get here? We got here because we are all part of the Traveling Academy. The Traveling Academy is an initiative of Het Nieuwe Instituut, Francine van Westerenen, to try to bridge formal and informal ways of knowing and to also experiment with models to do that. So far, Eric and I, we've been asked as the first curators of this Traveling Academy. And in the last two years, we went to five different locations at the fringes of Europe, three urban locations and two rural ones. This is our, our fifth location, fifth and last for now. 
unless a second season <laughs> happens of In Search of the Pluriverse. And why Asturias? Because we sense that here, uh, that this is a, a region which is um, at crossroads, uh, where many different layers of our society today are uh, encountering one another, be it the industrial uh, layer, the rural layer, the natural rewilding layer, and uh, the urban layer. So that's why we came here. We all arrived on Monday. We stayed and lived together in a farmhouse called PACA, Progetto Artistica uh, Casa Antonino, named after the, the man who built the farmhouse. These farmhouses are called Caseria. We learned from our host, Virginia Lopez, who is also an artist. On Tuesday, we all engaged into what we call a vertical field trip. And in the morning, we helped out basically with things that needed to be done. We wove a fence from hazelnut wood and, uh, well, the poles were not exactly chestnut. They were salvaged <laughs> from the local hardware store, as Cynthia Hathaway puts it. Um, but we wove a fence uh, in the vegetable garden of the farm. And in the afternoon, with Ana Carino sitting on my left, we took a silent sound walk. So we, we went into silent, in silence ourselves, but we listened to all kinds of sound transitioning from the fragmented rural area where the paca, where the farmhouse is, all the way by a, a river basin to the valley where the uh, steel plant of ArcelorMittal is implanted and back. It was a scorching hot day, so we got a little bit baked and dusty uh, from everything, but that was our immersion, let's say, our day, day one immersion. Uh, on all evenings, all of us shared each other's practices uh, in short presentations and, and questions and conversations around these practices. Yesterday, there were uh, four one-on-one -on -one talks which took place. And today, brings us to today, we have this final talk, which we've for now baptized Compassionate Conversation. Yeah, and today we... Um we keep it really small and intimate because we're just the six of us. And um, what really worked this week is that we lived in a house together. So we cooked together, we made breakfast, we almost, yeah, we slept together. Cynthia and, <laughs> Cynthia and I and Chiara and Anna shared a room. Um, and that sort of made it even more easy or inviting to share thoughts and conversations. And this sound you will hear throughout this conversation because it's the school bell that goes off and on and off and on. So let's see where that brings us. So that living together in one house really worked in the sense of exchanging thoughts and ideas. And today we are trying to make sense or to bring together all these notions and ideas, but also experience that we had, uh, physical experiences that we had uh, these past days. It's, we're keeping it small, but the questions are quite big, you could say. What did we learn, personally and collectively? What did we find out? And what are we going to take home from here to our own practice? But you can interpret it as small and big as you want in this conversation. How we structure this talk is that we, we will start with a grounding section or exercise or beginning. How would you formulate that, Pascal? I think grounding sounds good. So we start with grounding. Then um, we start to talk 
I was, we, 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 we do an attempt or we attempt to answer these questions about what we learned and what we take home from this. And we will um, end with a regrounding. So we ground, we talk and we reground. So, and before I give the, the mic to, to Pascal, who's going to do the grounding and the regrounding, we'd like to um, introduce our guests today. So I'll start with Cynthia Hathaway, who was born, welcome Cynthia, who was born and raised in Canada and arrived in the Netherlands in the late 90s, where she entered a master's program at the Design Academy. And you were always drawn to worlds that lie just outside the design domain, like giant vegetable growers and miniature train builders. And you've always been engaged with teaching and education. So you built curricula for two masters, the Fun Lab for Design Academy, to be inspired, but also think beyond the quick fix and rush of the amusement industry, and System D for Sandberg, the master's program of the Rietveld Academy. And you did that together with artist Melis Smets. And both uh, seem to focus, again, as in your own practice, on thinking outside existing frames. I think designer slash researcher is a good word for who you are professionally. Do you agree, Cynthia? Artistic researcher. Artistic, Artistic researcher. searcher, sorry. Re is in brackets. Artistic searcher. Okay. Welcome, Cynthia Hathaway. Artistic searcher. Then we have Anna Carreño. Anna, you are 32, you're 32 years young, I would say. You were born and raised here in Quijón. You studied architecture in Galicia worked several years as an architect researcher in Copenhagen and came back for a master's program in Madrid. And that master's program sort of naturally flowed into a PhD trajectory that you're in the middle of. And for this PhD, you, do res you, you research two post-industrial landscapes sites in Spain. One is here in Asturias, Aviles, and one is in Andaluz, and it's Torre Vieja, uh, at the Mediterranean coast. And besides doing this PhD, you have a practice as an architect. And you live partly in Madrid and partly here in Quijón. Yes. Welcome, Anna. Hello all. <laughs> then, and this is funny because um, for our listeners, uh, I'm sitting between Anna and Cynthia, and Eric is sitting between Pascal Gatzen and Chiara Sgaramella, whom I'm going to introduce. So it's kind of a funny setting, this. Chiara Sgaramella you link uh, conceptual and artistic investigation in your practice as researcher and artist. Uh, but you're not just researcher and artist, you also work as a museum mediator, you're engaged in school projects, and you're part of the collective Viridian, you told us, uh, which focuses on art and eco-pedagogy. Uh, for you, and I quote you, art is a fertile ground for hybridization of different ways of knowing. Your PhD research at Universidad Politecnica di Valencia uh, dealt with the intersection of collaborative practices and uh, eco-social art, uh, and also their political implications of these practices. Um, you are originally from Cerinolia in Puglia, Spain, uh, the heel of the boot of Italy, as you say, um, a town with a really a rural identity, so you were used to foraging uh, as a kid already. So. Agriculture is in your heart. Um, but today you live in Valencia and you work on, you engage and you're invested in trying to uh, make peri-urban agriculture a space of resistance together with the collectives that you, you work. Welcome, Chiara. 
Hi, everybody. Thank you very much for having me. Pascal Gotsen. Garments are your main medium in the collective initiatives uh, that you develop. And in both your practice and your teaching, you focus on relational and empowering aspects of fashion and you develop cooperative models of production. For a period of your life, you lived in New York. Uh, this is also where you became a founding member of Friends of Light, a worker cooperative for textile production in the Hudson Valley in, uh, in New York. Um, and on a biographical note, you told us that you, you've always felt different uh, already as a kid and as a teenager and garments uh, allowed you to take position in the world, um, which is why you got into fashion in the first place. Um, you became very successful as a fashion designer, but you also were disillusionized by the system. So you, you left the fashion system at a certain moment. And that tension between your love for making uh, whether it's hand weaving, spinning or carving wooden spoons, as we saw this week, um, and your strong ethics of work, you'll say, where you draw the line. Um, that's what makes your practice super exciting. So welcome, Pascal. Thank you. <laughs> uh, before we, we really give the mic to you, Pascal, um, it feels good to introduce ourselves. Because apart from being curators of the Traveling Academy um, and moderators of these talks, um, in this case, we're also participating in this talk, so it might be good to tell us a little bit more about our own practice. Maybe Sophie can start? Yeah. <laughs> this is the unscripted part. <laughs> mm. So my name is Sophie Krier, and um, um, I'm interested in weaving connections uh, between places, communities. And I'm also, the way that manifests itself in my practice is uh, twofold. On one hand, I have field essays, which is a series of books which I edit, in which I bring together thinkers and makers. And the other main part of my practice is called School of Verticality, which is all about doing this, what I call acupuncture of place, really trying to center down in a, as precise as possible way in, in a place where you, where you are. Thank you, Sophie. So. <laughs> Uh, I'm Eric Wong, and I feel a bit like in Asturias, I'm also on a crossroad. So I was trained as a graphic designer, art director, but now I'm shifting more towards writing and storytelling in general. So podcasting is one of them, but also writing columns, essays um, for clients, but also things that I think are important to notice and to write about. Um, so I would say storytelling in the biggest broadest sense of the word. Pascal, let's ground. <laughs> okay. Ground, ground, ground. So I invite us all to sit for one minute in silence and then you have a sheet uh, two sheets and one you share with someone else because the ink of the printer was uh, out and one is mentioning feelings and the one other one is mentioning needs and the feelings list has two sides so there is feelings that are fulfilled let's say or that are kind of satisfying 
I guess. I don't know how to say it. And then feelings that relate to feelings that are, that are feeling uncomfortable and maybe not so satisfied. So there's two sides. Because yeah. there are a lot of there are a lot of feelings on the sheet. There's so a, there's I'm a bit <laughs> intimidated by it. Me too. So I think we'll stick with it. We'll keep it simple today. Okay. It's an, it's and, and what what are these sheets? Maybe one word for our listeners. Where do these sheets come from? So these sheets we use in the practice of nonviolent communication, and it's to identify first our feelings. How do we feel? And then underneath those feelings, there's needs that are either being met or that are left unmet. So feel, feel your body on the chair, your feet on the floor. There's a bit of wind, there's sounds around us. And I will ring the bell. We now all make this gesture of closure. So the grounding is done, or we didn't attempt to ground, which felt really good. I hope I speak for everyone. Especially that minute of silence, it's so simple, but it really works to just sit and be in the moment. So thank you, Pascal. And we would like to start And Chiara is taking notes <laughs> in a very studious way. So sorry to ask you again, Chiara, but maybe it's nice if also that we go through this article again and that you kind of give us a, a summary of what's going on in there and which kind of point is being made. Because um, when we arrived here to Asturias, one of the first things we heard is that the slogan of Asturias, of this region, is uh, welcome to the natural paradise, right? Um, and Virginia Lopez, our host this week, she said that, you know, she expressed her hope that what if this was an agro paradise? What if all the policies and uh, all the money and the budgets and the resources would be geared to that, to make this an agro forestry paradise even? Uh, because the, the potential is there. That's what was said in the conversation. And this article somehow puts that back into perspective. So, so maybe you can... Um, 
I, I will try to summarize this article. It's a dialogue between journalist Elena Bandera and biologist Emilio Rico. It starts uh, with a very iconic title that says Asturias, agricultural paradise, uh, undervalued agricultural paradise. So it's a pun of words with the slogan that Sophie was mentioning before. And in, in the first paragraph, there's um, a reference to a study that was done in 1850. So in the 19th century, where um, it was like a scanning uh, of the agricultural production in Asturias. And biologist Emilio Rico says it's really surprising because the, the people who carried out this research describe a, a truly rich agricultural practice with, for example, um, um, grape uh, plantation, also production of wine, um, herbs for medicinal uses, flowers, not only um, you know, production of apple cider as we normally associate with, with Asturias, and uh, so this makes makes us think uh, us think about a, a heritage, an agricultural heritage that has been lost over the past the past century, and um, also we are not, in this sense, losing only the the plant varieties, but also the knowledge and the know-how that made those productions possible, and. This is in deep contrast with uh, some statistics that they are mentioned in the articles that say that only 2% of the horticultural produce that is consumed in Asturias is actually produced here. And that is not because people do not consume uh, vegetables and fruits. They actually do. They spend more than 100 uh, million euros every year. But it is, it is because they are mostly imported. They come from, from outside of the region. Mm. So the, something that we found really interesting this morning was the reference to this um, study that, w- that was called uh, Agroecological Zonification that was carried out in 2015. And it's a map of the uh, most valuable agricultural soils in Asturias. And according to this map, for example, in central Asturias, only... Um, 100 square kilometers uh, are considered a highly productive soil. And that represents scarcely 1% of the total of agricultural land, of, of land of Asturias, sorry. These are first quality um, terrains, according to, to this biologist, and they should be protected. Uh, however, there's no legislation and no policy protecting this highly productive soil whereas in uh, neighboring uh, regions like Cantabria or Escadi yes they have a policy protecting these um, these soils that are essential for food sovereignty and uh, for also like uh, biodiversity preservation and cultural diversity preservation are they uh, is it mentioned where these uh, soils are are they it's it's about there's a reference to the fact that they are in the valleys there the few flatlands that are available in Asturias we know that the orography of Asturias has a lot of mountainous territory where you cannot practice agriculture and what's um, let's say uh, controversial is that many uh, of the valleys many of the flatlands historically have been dedicated to industrial activities and that's something that has created an irreversible damage because you cannot recover the, that land anymore. That, that, that's why it's so urgent to protect the, the little land that's left 
and uh, as a diagnosis of the diagnose maybe of the situation as for why there's no pro protection in Asturias um, the the biologist says that there's a f lack of vision for the territory because there's there have, has always been like a big investment in creating industrial activities but uh, there's not a vision for for agriculture for agroecology and yeah this is briefly what yeah what what he says the co the conclusion is says he says it should be um it's it's advisable to orient the production towards uh, a diversification can we say that in english of uh, agricultural productions to get away from these um mono cultures that have been implanted in Asturias, that, which is milk production on one side, cider, uh, apple, for, uh, apple production for ciders, and also eucalyptus, he mentions. Uh, these three monocultures leave uh, behind a monotonous landscape and uh, a uniform landscape that's losing species and a lot of ecological information. These are the conclusions by biologist Emilio Rico. Is it is it dated the article? Is there a date? An article from 2017. 2017. Okay. So we're five years down the road. Mm -hmm. uh, the first question that comes to me is that um, Virginia told us the the owner of the farm told us how harsh life was. So we can describe it as being rich in the sense of crops and production and the relations that were between animals, ecosystems and people. But at the same time, it was not an easy life. It was more survival than thriving. So in a way, it is understandable that when there was a way out, and maybe Anna can say something about that, when there was a way out, uh, people choose to, to go work in the mines and for, for the steel industry because it, was, it gave more security, probably. Maybe security is not the word, but um, the income. As uh, it was financial always, security. Yeah, exactly because it was um, an historical humble region in Spain. Also, not very well connected because of the of the mountains. So even today, it is not uh, very well connected. There is a road, high speed. <laughs> Through the mountains, but the the train is quite slow. Uh, there are not so many uh, flights, and I think that yeah, just the people choose to change, uh, to go to the mines and to the steel industry, to the shipyards, but always keeping their farms and their uh, agricultural activity. So it was. Uh, Pluri-employment, something like that, you know, multitask Asturian uh, gene. Uh, and I think this is um, this is still happening. This was uh, one of the, of the things that Virginia was telling us. I mean, she's an artist. She, she tries to run her practice as an artist, but also she lives there, so she self-sustains herself in a way because of the lack of yeah, money that the country and the region spends on it, on culture, and that's a pity.
<laughs> that's it, I think. Mm -hmm. I thought maybe Cynthia wanted to respond to the, to at one side the richness of all these relations that were and that are now sort of being forgotten or neglected. Uh, so the contradiction between, between the richness but also the harshness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course we tend to idealize and these nostalgic ideas of uh, the idyllic when uh, it is very hard laborious work and um, you know there w was suffering let's say and uh, poverty and then the n another system comes in of promise of productivity in a different way you know the wheels start turning it's very physical and located in one valley uh, it looks like let's say this huge factory that can that pumps out and and is producing so much on a huge scale uh, seems to indicate a precision a place to come you know it's the Las Vegas in the in the valley of the Asturias region which which at first for people who are working skin and bone maybe has that sense of promise and then of course the production becomes just as hard even more toxic uh, you know your children are left as orphans your the cancers uh, start throughout your body and then that that so-called mecca becomes uh, also you don't own it it's not you maybe think it's a collective because you all come to the factory but the values are for elsewhere so it's this changing scenery of um, how to survive <laughs> survival it's hard working maybe pascal you could take it a bit further into the because um, Cynthia mentioned the collectiveness unions whether you own or not mm -hmm. the work that you perform whether you own or not the work that you are taking part in capitalism as a system which was you know played here out very well or is still playing out very well as a system well, I think it's playing out everywhere very well and it just has different, uh, it's structured differently, probably, on uh, relating to the conditions that are there. But what I was struck with, again, when Chiara uh, uh, was sharing the article, is that there's such the, the identities are so strong around this industrial past as well, and how people are imagining the future, let's say. So I think... And we also heard of these uh, examples from you, Anna, where the spectacle takes over and uh, that becomes the strategy to look forward to and not looking back at this agricultural past, but these... Could you maybe, because our listeners weren't all there when we talked about the spectacle, but could you give an example of what you mean with that? Well, the thing that I remembered from Anna's talk was uh, the Frank Gehry building in uh, Bilbao, the museum. There's a curtain in front of the challenges that are going on with the working class and that has kind of been traumatized by the industry that has been withdrawing itself and moving to other other parts and the jobs that have been lost. And But, but there's a lot of energy that went into being working class and a lot of energy that went into the identity of being working class because it was enforced also by fighting the, the, the systems of power and the... And the, and the forces that were moving 
the, the, the jobs somewhere else, let's say. So I can imagine that it's hard, and Asturias is, is really kind of identifying this post-industrial uh, past as something that is precious to them and that roots them in a certain type of history. And they kind of forget about this agricultural. This agricultural is kind of feels like a very light, also romantic thing that is on the edges of, of, of this identity, but it's not... Their main identity seems very much rooted in this industrial past. Yeah, and everybody seems to have um, family or, or, or history within that. So Anna, your, your, one of your grandfathers used to drive the coal train from the mines to the harbor, right? Yes. He was working uh, at uh, one of the trains that uh, pick up the coal in Langreo. That is a coal mining region and uh, bring it to Gijón. And then he changed to Renfe or Febe that they are the public uh, system for passengers. And did he tell you what, how was that? How was that kind of work? It was very systematic actually because they only used to, to pick up the train from one place to another. I mean, there were of course workers that put the coal inside and just take it out so he was just like moving around with the train and and where was that coal going to i mean it was taken out from the coal valley of langreo as you said and he took it down towards the atlantic uh, yeah to to gijon to the port but also to the shipyards to use as energy for the to build up the ships I just wanted to add uh, something to what Cynthia was saying before, the importance of not idealizing the agricultural past. And it really, this other article that Virginia shared with us is an interview with anthropologist Adolfo Garcia Martinez. And it really connects with one of the photos that we saw yesterday because we went to the Museum of the Asturian People here at Gijón. And we saw uh, photos, and like old photos, and one of the farmhouses, we saw a woman Uh, that had almost like eight eight children and Cynthia underlined that she didn't seem like she seemed a little tired like in the photo we were you know wondering you know how what was her feeling how was her life how was her quotidian you know daily daily routine with so many children and working also in the in the fields and that adds like it, this article actually adds a gender perspective to the phenomenon of abandoning the rural areas because this anthropologist talks about how the, the traditional Assyrian family was very hierarchical and patriarchal so women were not actually independent economically and they were mostly bound to the house and to the housework which was really hard also and uh, he talks about how um, in the 60s um, it's a phenomenon that has been studied uh, mothers they were still related to the land but they kind of educated their daughters to study to go to the city and to go away from the village because that was a way for them to acquire their freedom and independence and now what you see is that the demographic pyramids in the rural area of Asturias are, are totally inverted there are mostly old people and very few children and they are very male like the, the majority of the population is male so there are no women who actually want to go back to the rural areas because of this heritage this problematic heritage so it is something that he suggests that If we really want to recover uh, and, and bring back the population to rural areas, we really have to make a space for women 
to, to have jobs, to be independent and to somehow question, you know, that order that um, made uh, agricultural life possible for so many centuries. And that same gender perspective is super interesting to also take if we think of the industrial evolution here in Asturias, because sidetrack. And I remember in our preparation talk before we came that you mentioned that a friend of you made a documentary about women who worked in the mines, which is a completely untold story. Did you manage to reach this uh, friend? And do you know more about this documentary? I talked to her, but the thing is that it was documentary during her school time. So as I understood, they don't have it edited, but they were um, interviewing some of these women that are still alive, but it was very hard because they don't want to talk um, very on camera. Exactly, because uh, it's a well-known thing in the um, in the Cuencas Mineras, but at the same time, the mining company doesn't want want this story to, to come out. Exactly, so it's part of their history at least because uh, I mean they were just taking the the job of their husbands when they had an accident or they died just to have this uh, salary at the end of the week and to sustain their families so at the same time they were they were uh, going down to the mines uh, and they were ruining their houses I somehow I have to think about what Kiara said about it's an interesting idea that women are sort of on an unconscious strike, <laughs> an unorganized strike long term to not return to the countryside because they're fed up with it and their position. It reminds me of the story you told this morning, Chara, of your grandmother when we were in the car, that she was not allowed to go to Milano from her brother to become a hatmaker. Which which was remained the dream for her that she still cherishes. This very powerful system of objectification and dehumanization and separation is really a part of that engine of uh, throwing the community apart. Like you said, your grandfather, within within industry, you're given one task, and that's it. You're not given other jobs because that would cause a bit more of a, a sense of knowledge community. So as soon as if you can fragment labor, then you disempower. And I think that's the, also the patriarchal uh, way of um, setting up these um, isolated uh, individuals that from men and women to us and nature to... Uh, us and animals as being non-human in a in a degraded sense. So this is a this is a, a very you see it everywhere, huh? Everywhere. And, and is that then why Anna? Um, is that then maybe why the the worker culture, whether it's you know in the na naval or mining or steel works. Uh, or textile industry, because there was also textile industry here in Gijón. Is that why that worker identity is, is perhaps so strong in the collective imaginary? Because we found out about this uh, 
famous strike of the miners in 1934, which yes. was super violently repressed by, by Franco, mm -hmm. was kind of a prelude to the civil war. Maybe we can say it like that. I don't know. Uh, but they st striking is like putting all these bodies together to create one large collective mm -hmm. body. For a common... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, I think this uh, common culture is still very strong in Asturias. Uh, the last mining strike, I think it was in 2011 or or something like that. They were cutting the high, the making highway. barricades, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And bazookas and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, really huge. What were they striking for uh, 10 years ago? In order to not to close the last mining uh, places. I, I was thinking, sorry about uh, what Cynthia was saying before, that uh, it also relates with, with this feeling inside the worker that if he quits his job, He's not going to found another thing because he or she only knows one task. And uh, also I was uh, telling you yesterday about the tabaqueras here in Gijón, the tabacalera, that it was the, the tobacco industry, and how uh, they were all women working there, and how they were teaching each other and... Um, like helping each other in in that sense, not to be aware of uh, maybe this uh, this job is uh, replaced uh, tomorrow by a machine, but you know how to do this other thing. So I think this this is important also uh, in the industry culture because yeah, they were like uh, left without any other option. No support net. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that this idea of this way of working, this non-hierarchical, caring way of working and living comes from women. And they set it up. Like Pascal, you have a lot of experience. Yeah, you spent a lot of time in collectives, with collectives, set them, setting them up, both in um, the United States and here in the Netherlands. Can you add something to that? You know, what are what could be possible answers to, to that all-consuming capitalist way of working that surrounds us? Yeah, I think, well, yeah, the division of labor is what keeps us apart. And it's, I don't know even if it's patriarchy, but it's definitely capitalism that is served by people being more and more efficient, like machines almost. And now machines are able to take over. So that's the whole Marxist theory as well, right? That, that slowly... Um, the means of production start to structure all these social relations as well. And I think women, but it's also based on survival. And I find that really challenging in this time because I wonder about community a lot and about cooperation. And as I said yesterday, there are only actually 367 worker co-ops in the US, which is very little. And that's because the culture is just not... It's not conditioned in a way that's conducive to creating collectivity. And I think that's what we're struggling with. So we have this long history of capitalism in the West, for sure. And it's less in the South, because people have been much more dependent on survival. So then other strategies, like that's what we saw in Greece, 
when the, the economic collapse in Greece, all kind of other initiatives started to happen because people just need to survive. And you need to feed your children. I mean, especially with mothers, that's like their first priority. So then other creativity kind of surfaces and people become much more reliant on each other. Also in Eastern Europe, I've had a partner who was from Bulgaria. Everything was still structured around the family supporting the, the children and the grandchildren. And everything was much more communal because that was the only way to survive. And that always feels a bit precarious and constructed in if you start to create a collective or a community in, the, in, a, in a Western kind of context. Yeah, because there's, there is definitely, if we look at that list of needs, there's definitely, we have, a lot of our needs would be met if we would work and live in community. But we are not so connected to these needs that we just mentioned, like companionship, like friendship, uh, mutuality. These are really basic needs that we all share and love and you know, they all support our well-being, but we don't recognize them so so much. So we keep on being in competition, we keep on protecting our individual spaces because we don't know, otherwise we don't know if we're going to survive tomorrow. So capitalism has created a lot of fear that actually prevents us from community, from cooperation, and education is adding to that. Yeah, well, you told a compelling story yesterday about your making your jackets and that you were constantly sort of imprisoned in that in, in, in that idea that time is money. I need to cut corners. I need to, you know, spend less hours on weaving. I need to spend less hours on spinning. I need to... Sp so, so that idea that time is money and that is being represented in the price for a product, that's also something that... Is that breakable? Can we break that super strong code between time and money? Well, we can break habits, but I think a lot of these habits would be broken more easily in community. Because we, I, of course, I can break, I can break that habit, and I, by becoming aware of it and by finding more ease and more spaciousness around the habit. So habits can be broken, and we can train into new habits. But it's 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 not easy because if everything around us is still functioning on that matrix. It's 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 a challenging. So it's also me, in us. Huh? We're raised with it. It's 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 yeah, not yeah, it's are. not something that we can shake off. It's it's in our bodies. It's in our systems. It's what we've grown up with. Yeah, and that's a challenge. That are, it's in our DNA. We are capitalism. It's not something that's external to our bodies and to our minds. It is it is how we are conditioned. Also, this uh, lack of a sense of dependency and maybe scarcity allows for that sense of dependency. If you think you're in a society of abundance where you can go to the hardware store and get your fence poles if you can't have, you know, get them yourself or that you have constant supply of something, then you, you, you also disengage from even visually seeing scarcity or even if you do see it you think oh it'll be okay you know uh, I, I can buy it some from somewhere so, you know somewhere in the world I will be supplied or the world will take care of me but yeah I, I actually think it's I think it's the opposite I think we are here in the west that's how I experience it that we are uh, trained and um 
that there there is like a scarcity propaganda, right? Demand, uh, like the demand and supply in the whole economic market is based on creating scarcity so that... Class is over. It's a di very different bell than from the one minute of silence bell. They should, we should switch bells. But I totally lost now the train of thought, Sophie. Yeah. It's, the it's the factory alarm. But I'll, I'll try to recap. Um, the point I was trying to make, because I follow what you said, Cynthia, but I also think that we are uh, right now uh, in a society uh, which, which, which is fueled by scarcity and fear. Uh, and that that is why we're stuck in the production and consumption cycles. I mean, that's one of the mechanisms of capitalism for me. It's like creating fear, creating a sense of scarcity. I need more of this. I need another uh, iPhone, <laughs> etc. Um, and when actually, uh, and maybe Pascal, we were speaking about that yesterday in our one-on-one, -on -one, about that when we when we actually can uh, identify those needs in us and in, in others, um, and when uh, we try then to meet them um, from a kind of a place of freedom, of total freedom, when we are connected to ourselves, to this vital energy inside us, that then suddenly we can just activate what's right here and now. I really liked how you said that. And uh, we don't need to try to reach, you know, for something behind the horizon, uh, which we'll never manage to but we can just activate. What, what can we activate right here and right now with our practices and our, our bodies and our life experience? That's maybe also a nice bridge into like the second part of this conversation. I think the thing with capitalism is, is there's no them. No? So there's no them. them. There's, no, there's outside. no outside. There's no capitalist. Yeah. Because everybody is part of that system. Even the people who earn a lot of money they also constantly are competing. They're also in this mode of fear. So it's us who is continuing this. So there's, there's no them. And I think that's really important. And that's also what I've learned here in the past week. That if we, if we st stay being a victim of things outside of us, then there's no agency to, 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 to do something else. And I thought that... That contrast for me between what happened in Mondragon and what's ha what happened in this area is really, um, yeah, constructive to see that, that to, to see the difference. Can you can you quickly for our listeners? Um, yeah. So here the unions played a big role and they kind of uh, aligned themselves with where power was, let's say, and they. The workers, there was no other solution than just to go down the road of, of de-industrialization. While in Mondragon, people said, or well, a group of people had a vision that maybe they could take the jobs into their own hands and become owners of the, of the work that they were doing and become owners of the factories in the end and make sure that there were jobs and that they retained jobs. So there's two different strategies and ways of relating to this um, system where industrialization is moving overseas and moving to other places. So for me, this this acknowledgement of agency in ourselves is so important. And I think, Pascal, you were talking about also yesterday that what are you fighting for? 
if you know you you as uh, you know you're in a union and you're out there protesting, but you're actually keeping that system going. So this this awareness of okay, what am I protesting for? What am I unionizing for? And what is the union actually supporting in the end? It's just keeping the system going. It just safeguards the fact that you're part of the system. So that that broader awareness of um, these ideas. Uh, of where you position yourself within these systems is, I think, very important. Because mm-hmm. you could be perpetuating, even as a union or even as protesters, just a system that is still causing uh, the problems. So you, you keep that system going. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, in, the, in the, the regrounding, we can go to ourselves and think about how, how, what are our own needs and peel them off the, the, the needs of the system. But we could also do it a bit less ambitious and just make a short round in what you took from from being here. And um, we had uh, interesting conversations about our practice and about our the things that we found out in our practice. So why don't we try to to, to formulate something that's stuck with us? throughout these conversations. Maybe also from the one-on-ones or from the evenings in the Paneda, that small um, barn-like structure that we had our talks in. Would you would you dare to start with that? Yes, I can start. Kiara, <laughs> sorry. I will try to maybe answer the, the questions you mentioned at the beginning, if it is okay. Uh, What were they? Because I, I kind of lost them. Uh, What did we learn, individually or collectively? What did we find out? And what do we take home? What I found out uh, were very interesting common threads with the other practitioners that were invited. For example, with Cynthia, the idea of activism involving also other species, companion species that are living with us on this planet. And uh, as for Eric and Sophie, the idea of multiple forms of knowledge and how how do do we access them and combine them as for Pascal I really value the we have in common this idea of craft and the the knowledge that comes with manual labor and really hours of familiarity with different materials and techniques but also the idea of collaborative practice as a space for shared creativity and affect And with Anna, it was amazing because we are looking at cities from two different perspectives that are totally interconnected. She's looking at post-Fordist capitalist uh, renewal of cities and the contradictions that that creates. And I'm looking at um, how how can we create new narratives for cities that do not necessarily pass through that uh, glossy uh, reinvention that that this this new capitalism is creating. So this was really precious to see how, even though we live in different places and uh, come from different backgrounds, we we have all these common threads in common and it it really nourishes uh, my practice and I hope yeah, the, the exchange was, was fruitful. And uh, I take home these, these relationships. You know, it's something that I hope I can cultivate, even though we are far away somehow, and s- still keep learning and exchanging ideas and practices for the future. So do I hear that, well, Kiara, that you want to stay in touch with us? Do you mind? <laughs> <laughs> no, I would, we would love that, because we, 
our hidden agenda or what's not so hidden is that we'd love to build this pluriversal network of makers and thinkers and doers. Who would like to take over? What's stuck? What do you, what do you bring? What did you learn? What did you see? As I was saying, this um, self-acceptance uh, that came to me during this week, because I live and work in between Madrid and Gijón, and and at the end it's like I have like a renewed um, view or point of view of 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 Asturias, I think. Because I, I think um, like I, ha I have right now um, more energy in a way to, to spread uh, the word about, uh, about what I'm researching, but also about the things that we already have uh, and the paths that we already have, but they are hidden in this uh, heterotopia-like uh, Scenery, and I think we have more options than this uh, glossy curtain that is taken in in uh, most of these uh, theories and regions, post-industrial regions. When you say um, I, I somehow gained a new view of Asturias, my own region, because we all always come with sort of assumptions, pro projections, I'm speaking for myself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and indeed, when we are with a group as intensively as we were this week, uh, necessarily, we, by definition, we, or by nature, we influence one another, right? So mm -hmm. we start to see things differently. Mm -hmm. can, you, uh, is can you name like maybe one idea or perspective you had which shifted a little bit? Like, can you give an example? Yeah, for example, I thought that the agricultural net was completely broken and I cannot feel that it's not like that. It's uh, what some people want us to think, maybe, and probably, <laughs> but I think it's still there. So it's nice to see like people in Asturias working, uh, still working together in this kind of uh, companionships in the rural and also in the in the urban one. Had, had you spent uh, time, because you came and stayed with us also mm -hmm. in the house, even though you live in <laughs> Gijón, but Gijón and Trubia are two different worlds, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Had you stayed like this in a in a rural area? Yes, because your grandmothers, mm -hmm. uh, your grandparents have a house, right, also mm -hmm. in a rural yes. area. Well, maybe, maybe I can take over because I, I we spend the morning together on, on the... On the on the public beach, sandwiched between two large industrial sites, which was kind of special. But a lot of people were there, you know, relaxing, having fun, talking, having coffees. But I, in the car, you also told me, and that and that that reminded me of the physicality of a landscape. Also, that you drive often from Madrid to Gijón, but in the winter you have to pass these mountains, and that can be pretty spooky, with the mist and the ice. So then you are forced to take the train, which is also not always a pleasurable ride. So I'm from the Netherlands, which is like super flat and super well, you know, infrastructured. A landscape can be an obstacle or it sounds negative, but it's, 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 it's a force to reckon with. And um, another thing that I really got from you is this mm. idea that things are happening at different speeds. 
and that the connection between all these things that are happening are lost. And I think Cynthia also mentioned this, that, that, that links are being broken, which is kind of interesting and frightening at the same time. But you, you described the decline of the industry like a super slow line that you can almost hardly notice. But the upcoming of that glossy curtain, I really like what Pascal described, like, the, like, like Bilbao, the Bilbao model of building this glossy museum and create a new, in, a new economy with that. Uh, that goes very fast. And in between these different speeds, people are lost and people are f trying to find their position or reposition themselves. So for me, that was a really interesting um, idea and notion. If I can just add to that glossy curtain of Bilbao, what does that mean for our cultural, we as cultural makers? And what is being used in order to promote this mm -hmm. glossy curtain? I mean, again, yeah, <laughs> what is happening to our own, uh, what is the strategy and what is what are we doing about it? I mean, uh, yeah, we can watch all these so-called beautiful next push-button museums, but that's supposed to be our <laughs> practices that are being used in order to perpetuate a certain leisure activity and identity. So, yeah, here we are sitting by this massive, biggest building in the whole of Spain that's now been converted to culture and, and but what is the program um, and how is it going to be used and where do we as cultural makers uh, fit or not fit and don't and want to resist in this um, so I think this this we have to be very careful because here we are sitting but um, the Bilbao effect is is also these territories you can create this glossy curtain in this stage, but what's actually happening on that stage? What's the agenda yeah, of this yeah. stage? Yeah, and how is the artistic being used? How is it being programmed to, to also make people passive or think, okay, yeah, I go see a happy land. Is that how we want to see our productions, artistic productions being used? So, um, yeah. Thank you, Cynthia, for that observation. I think it's really important and it really connects with the idea of agency. What kind, what kind of agency do we have as cultural practitioners? Do we want to reinforce the same narrative of competition, of uh, endless rhythm of creative production uh, that uh, creates an added value for you know, uh, real estate, tourist markets and this uh, fossil-fueled economy? Or do we want to, uh, maybe together, through collaborative strategies, design different ways of conceiving cultural production and, and uh, cultural sharing, you know, like make it even more accessible, not just accessible to these few publics who can afford traveling and hopping from one country to the other to see the new glossy museum. Thank you, Cynthia, for that. I was thinking, Chiara and Cynthia, when I was listening to both of you just now, that when you say, you know, what are, what are we actually contributing to? Or how are we getting instrumentalized or appropriated as, mm -hmm. as cultural practitioners? I get, again, that image of the... Because before you were saying, uh, when workers go on strike, what are they unionizing mm -hmm. against? Mm -hmm. um, you're about to have a wool march 
in uh, in seven days where uh, basically you're going to have a whole flock of sheep going on strike more or less yeah. <laughs> <laughs> protesting against the, the devaluing of the wool uh-huh. uh, system and one thing that that Uh, sticks with me is a very small moment actually in this whole packed week uh, we were harvesting the um, the local indigo plant we were harvesting the leaves of that plant with uh, Virginia Lopez on the on the grounds of the farmhouse and as often happens right when you are like doing a manual activity and it's sort of repetitive but not in a Not in a mechanical way, it's repetitive in a beautiful way. Like you pick one leaf and another and another and another. And that bucket that you are supposed to fill just doesn't fill because it's so much work. Uh, but so you, you kind of ground, you you know, you go you go a bit down, I think, in the energy. And then you, I've, in my experience, that's when you have the best conversations because you're half doing one thing and half sort of talking. And Virginia in that moment shared one of the most important fr- uh, frustrations that she's experiencing after uh, 10 years of PACA, of running PACA as a cultural project in this fragmented rural area or agropolitan area of Gijon, that for her it's very frustrating that the artistic and the cultural is not seen, not recognized. So that connects to one of the needs on your sheet, Pascal, the need to be seen, to see and to be seen. Um, it's not recognized as an alternative for existing economic models. So, for example, this plant could be a possible revitalizing uh, resource and community activity, and it could have a lot of meaning if it was embraced by the whole parish of Chinero, where where she is housed. But it's actually seen as entertainment. So that's where I go back to your glossy curtains. I think sometimes the glossy curtain is also... We wear it by accident, yeah. maybe. That's what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. So that's something I became aware of, and how and how difficult it is, no, to maybe to dis- dissolve or step away from art and um, be more part of daily life. Yeah. That's what sticks with me yeah. right now. Yeah. When you say make visible, we I think we need to make things more visible in our own spaces. Whether it's whether it's what we do, who we are, how we produce, I think this part of even bringing sheep through the city again—it's—it's it's making visible our what we are disconnected from, and and it's 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 very important to get out of our spaces and take those uh, dissolve those walls, uh, whatever walls those are to make visible, make tangible, feel, to make, to feel this through embodied practices. I say that in such an intellectual term, I hate that. But through this touch, through this, hello, messiness. do you do? Who are you? What are you? Uh, a curiosity um, to, to really start the materiality, learning through and making visible Uh, materiality of, of yeah, and I think we we are st- too much stuck in the visual yeah. because we talked about the wool march and we also talked a lot this week about the idea of time and the idea of uh, that time is money but that you have different paces of development but in the wool march everybody is stopped yeah. by the sheep in a very physical way so if you're on your way to the to the grocery store 
you got to wait, man, because there are 300 sheep passing. So it freezes the moment and it makes you aware. It's not only visual, it, you have to sort of stop. And, and, and with that comes a lot of needs, maybe, Pascal, or a lot of unmet needs or a lot of emotions that, that you have to go through. So it's not only the visual, it's, 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 it's a more omnipresent sense of time and being, I guess. Um, well, what I take from this week is the ease that I feel now being in this group coming to this um, trip after being on another trip and not knowing anyone so not feeling the safety maybe that I would like to experience and the safety that I feel now and the comfort being around all of you so that's uh, that's a big gift for me and the kinship that I feel with all of you that also feels very precious to me and I hope uh, to nurture friendship as well after this. So that feels very rich. And personally, I'm touched that I chose to show the Friends of Light, the work of Friends of Light, because somehow it has gotten to the background because I've been busy with structuring curricula, fighting for it, the linen project, all these kind of bigger things, and all of a sudden being back to the intimacy of, of making and also the simplicity of that, that kind of touches me as well. So I'm happy that there was this moment of sharing that was very open and in which I could share anything and I wasn't held to my identity as the co-founder of the linen project. <laughs> So I love I, I I love being in touch with that intimacy of, of of making and small and kind of simplicity. So thank you, thank you for inviting me and thank you for all for your presence and your generosity in uh, in sharing and being together. Thank you all. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> Well, yeah, maybe I also find it within our group, but also the fact that we are here and we see this almost anywhere we go, this shared story of um, what's happening to the world. Where, you know, if I go to Africa, if I go to Canada, if I go here, if I go, you know, to Valencia, I see, yeah, and that's a beautiful thing that you showed that image of the, the... lettuce saying you know we are here you know the lettuce is is everywhere calling for attention for saying uh, yeah show that we are here somehow and and it, it's really that um, unison of voices wherever you are and it, it it makes you feel okay we we're together but let's really get it together Anna how do you say we are here in uh in this language. Estamos aquí. One more time, less fast. <laughs> Estamos aquí. Estamos aquí. Estamos aquí. I wanted 
to share a beautiful sentence that we read in this article about the gender perspective on rural depopulation. And at some point, the anthropologist said uh, women uh, between the 60s and the 70s voted with their feet in the sense that they left. They left the countryside that meant uh, oppression for them and they start tried to find uh, more freedom and self-determination in other in other contexts and I thought it was a really powerful wording uh, considering also that in those years women nobody actually could vote in Spain it was uh, a dictatorial regime so I thought um, I wanted to share this with you because it was really really strong expression and really meaningful can you can you say it one more time in uh, in Spanish Las mujeres votaron con sus pies. In Search of the Pluriverse is part of the Traveling Academy, an initiative of Het Nieuwe Institute in close partnership with the Consulate General in Istanbul and embassies in Germany, Morocco, Spain and the UK. The Travelling Academy brings together makers from these regions and the Netherlands to learn how formal and informal ways of knowing can support each other in tackling ecological, sociopolitical and spatial issues. <laughs>